0: In chapter two of his essay on Liberty, which is arguing for why we ought to not impose restrictions on free speech or as he calls it expression of opinion, including publication. Mill is going to be making an argument that's not appealing primarily to rights, but rather to utility. He is a utilitarian, and so the usefulness or the, you might say, preponderance of positive benefits over negative harms generated by doing certain things, that's what's foremost in his mind. And he provides a number of different supporting arguments for this. And one of the most interesting ones has to do with what we can call, and what he calls, overcoming one-sidedness. One-sidedness of what? One-sidedness of truth. Meaning, and this is a common term in the 19th century and the early 20th century, particularly in philosophy, meaning elimination of a sort of myopic, you might say blinkered or blinded way of looking at things that is able to take into account the totality or at least as much as we can get of it of truth about a matter. And there's a lot of things before we look at mills examples. There's a lot of things in which we get just a partial viewpoint on things. And we could have a better one. I'll give you a prime example right now. You're getting my take on John Stuart mills work, which is a take on a particular topic. So you've already got an interpretation of an interpretation, and we might bring other partners into the conversation in the way that mill is actually suggesting here in order to overcome that one-sidedness and have the opposite, which would be many-sidedness or a fullness of perspective. So Mill points out early on in this section, he says that one of the principal causes which makes diversity of opinion advantageous and will continue to do so until mankind shall have entered a stage of intellectual advancement, which at present seems at an incalculable distance meaning that there could be a time eventually where we've figured it all out and we don't need multiple points of view, but we're nowhere near that right now. And clearly in the present day, we're nowhere near that 150 years after Mill. So he says we've considered only two possibilities up until now, that the received opinion may be false. The received opinion is sort of the majority view and some other opinion consequently true, right? Some minority opinion or that the received opinion being true, a conflict with the opposite error is essential to a clear apprehension and a deep feeling of its truth. So these are different possibilities, right? But there's another third possibility. What if the received opinion, the majority view, what we might call the common sense view, what if it's partly true, but partly false? What if it's missing something? What if the way in which it's framed is leaving something out? or inducing people to look at some things in the wrong way. So he says, there's a commoner case than either of these, when the conflicting doctrines, instead of being one true and the other false, share the truth between them. Now, what does it mean to share the truth between them? Just to get over any sort of misreadings of this, it doesn't mean that they agree upon a common truth. It means that there's some truth over here on one side, and then there's another portion of truth over here on the other side. And when you put them together, then you get more truth overall. Whereas if you insist on one side or the other side exclusively, You're missing out on something because you have deprived yourself of the opportunity of considering and apprehending the truth that's available on the other side. So he says that in these cases, the non-conforming opinion is needed to supply the remainder of the truth of which the received doctrine embodies only a part. And then he goes on and gives nice truism here. Popular opinions on subjects not palpable to sense are often true, but seldom or never the whole truth. They are part of the truth, sometimes a greater, sometimes a smaller part, but exaggerated, distorted, and disjoined from the truths by which they ought to be accompanied and limited. And, you know, we could think of all sorts of contemporary examples of this. We're subject to all sorts of cognitive biases. So we pay more attention to the things that already fit in with our general way of looking at things. And we tend to ignore, downplay, or sometimes even just totally reject things that don't fit in with that as well. And by doing so, by sticking with that one opinion, we are embracing a one-sided viewpoint on truth. So the non-conforming opinion is going to be important here. He says heretical opinions are generally some of these suppressed and neglected truths bursting the bounds which kept them down and either seeking reconciliation with the truth contained in the common opinion or fronting it as enemies and setting themselves up with similar exclusiveness as the whole truth. And this is quite common, by the way, Mill is not saying that there is anything inherently better about non-conforming or heretical opinions. He's not romanticizing the lonely genius who is in touch with things that we're missing out on. No, he's, he's just being very realistic about this. In any given case, odds are that the truth is something complex and it's shared across a number of different perspectives. Another point that he makes very interesting, a little bit later on just, you know, a few sentences down has to do with progress. And you know that Mill is a big advocate of progress. And he often tends to talk about the forces of order or conservatism as if they are in some way backwards and not particularly in touch with the truth. But here he says, in revolutions of opinion, one part of the truth usually sets while another rises. Even progress, which ought to super add, for the most part, only substitutes one partial and incomplete truth for another. What does he mean by super adds there? So the idea would be something like the vision or the ideology that we have of the way that the sciences work, right? Not only do we have the whole scientific method thing, but then there's this idea where we're gradually expanding our universe of what we know from all these things that we can take for granted. It doesn't really work that way. You know, if you ask people engaged in some sort of technical process or any sort of academic discipline, very often they will tell you if they're being honest. Well, you know, I studied this and that back in college, but we kind of passed over quickly and I've forgotten all that. I don't actually know. I just sort of take it for granted that all of these things are true. And what's happened is the stuff that's in front of them is what they know. And progress itself often works that way. We've made a lot of progress in the time since Mill. And there have been some truths that have been lost in the process some perspectives you might think for example of the in anglo-american philosophy obviously not in other areas of philosophy where they never did forget this of the famous revival or renaissance of virtue ethics where suddenly analytic philosophers largely analytic philosophers realized that they left something out of moral philosophy and focusing exclusively on egoism and conscientism and other forms of deontology and utilitarianism we left out virtue ethics well there were there were some truths that had been left out and then we have authors like say alistair mcintyre from the 80s onward publishing book after book after book an article and saying well not only did you leave out virtue ethics and the notion of character traits there's also this whole issue of traditions and which are healthy and which are moribund and you know he devoted himself to, to that sort of thing that would be bringing back something that had been a truth that had been lost in the process. And then, you know, you get some virtue ethics who ethicists who just super add or substitute rather than, than super adding, which would go against what say, again, McIntyre suggests, interestingly enough, Mill is one of the authors who McIntyre thinks virtue ethics absolutely must take seriously and bring in which would be a process of super adding rather than merely substituting. So there, that's a nice example there, but all progress tends to work this way. He, he says, he says that improvement consists chiefly in this. The new fragment of truth is more wanted, more adapted to the needs of the time than that, which it displaces. So we often lose things in the process. Now he goes on and he talks about how one-sided asserters of partially true, but non-conforming doctrines are useful or helpful to us. How is that actually the case? Well, they're providing us with something that we're otherwise going to be missing. He says there are things that we otherwise would have overlooked and we won't overlook them if somebody is bringing them to our attention. Now there's a little bit of optimism there that we'll we'll take into account what other people have to say without immediately dismissing them. He's got some really interesting examples here And one of them is worth fleshing out in much greater detail, which I'll do elsewhere, but we will at least mention it. So these examples, what are they of how one-sidedness, one-sidedness of people who almost seem like cranks themselves, like in the case of Rousseau, turn out to be very important. So let's look at the case of Rousseau first. He says, in the 18th century when nearly all the instructed and all of the uninstructed led by them were lost in admiration of what is called civilization and of the marvels of modern science literature and philosophy, greatly overrating the amount of unlikeness between the men of modern times and those of ancient times, when they indulged the belief that the whole of the difference was in their own favor, that they now understood things rightly, with what a salutary shock did the paradoxes of Rousseau explode like bombshells in the midst, dislocating the compact mass of one-sided opinion and forcing its elements to recombine in a better form and with additional ingredients. Now there's very nice rhetoric there on Mill's part. What is he talking about? Most of the, the intelligentsia, and not just in philosophy, across the board. In the 18th century, we're saying things are getting better and better. I mean, we still have absolute despots, and there's all these problems going on, but we can probably fix these. And civilization consists in enlightened, in moving forward with these sorts of things. And Rousseau comes along and says, civilization, while it does in fact improve us in certain ways, also makes us able to do more bad things. And it has an inherently corrupting effect upon us. And he he says this in a lot of different ways. His various discourses, the social contract, his his work, Emile, right? All these sorts of things that he's bringing forward and and also the way that he's engaging with the intelligentsia of his time through letters and actions and all of that sort of stuff. And Rousseau is seen as being what we nowadays call an outlier or a maverick, somebody who's on the outside of things. As a matter of fact, he and Voltaire, who also embody, of time don't fit in together very well but Rousseau turns out to be quite important in pointing out where civilization is not living up to its great promises and while Rousseau himself this is what Mill thinks is not entirely right. As a matter of fact, he's probably not even half right. If we take his works as a totality, he certainly is putting important things on the table, which then the other authors can say, oh yeah, you know, okay, maybe we were a little bit hasty. Maybe we were a little bit one-sided in our approach to things. So Rousseau is a great example. Another prime example, political life. Now, Mill is framing this in rather diametric terms, but we can see this in terms of multiple party systems as well. So he says, in politics, it's almost a commonplace that you need two parties to have healthy political life, a party of progress and reform and a party of order and stability. And he says, until the one or the other shall have so enlarged its mental grasp as to be a party equally of order and progress, each of these modes of thinking derives its utility from the deficiencies of the other. But it's in great measure the opposition of the other that keeps each within the limits of reason and sanity. So this questionable whether it really works this way in crisis situations or in times of incredible factionalization. But you do have to admit that there's something there. At least this is partially true, right? That in many cases, the two parties provide policies, proposals, focuses, ideas that contribute to the the whole, and each of them usually is unwilling to listen to the other about how great their ideas are, but they're occasionally prone to do that. A great example of that right now here in the United States is prison reform. For a long time, it's, it's been the case that on the left, there was a great interest in prison reform. We have a lot of troubles in, in our entire penal system, which isn't even really a system, but rather a patchwork of systems. And conservatives were much more of the law and order, lock 'em up, throw away the key, retributive mentality. And then we had the sort of center left was not that interested in these issues, except for, you know, occasionally some people or, or some portions of the party would be helpful with that. And eventually we've come to the realization more or less across the spectrum, at least when it comes to political agents, that what we've got going on right now is a failure an utter failure. It's horrific in its effects. There's very little oversight of jails and prisons across the nation, correctional officers, many of whom are very poorly paid and in difficult situations themselves, are getting away with all sorts of things that they shouldn't be. The conditions in prisons are inhumane. We really need to have an emphasis on prison education that we used to have, but retributive measures removed or austerity measures in some cases as well. There's a consensus now among conservatives and liberals that this ought to change, which is one reason why I'm teaching in in prisons again on the second chance Pell program. So that's an example of what Mill is talking about here with political parties. They each put different things on the table and they work out some sort of deal. Now, a third example, That he brings up, and I'm not going to talk too much about this because there's so much discussion that we can put it into a separate talk. Christian morality. And he says, you know, we got to figure out what Christian morality actually means. But let's say we actually do understand what it is. And it is um, some sort of system. So he says that the Christian system is no exception to the rule that in an imperfect state of the human mind, the interests of truth require a diversity of opinions. And where would it get that from? He says other ethics than any which can be evolved from exclusively Christian sources must exist side by side with Christian ethics to produce the moral regeneration of mankind. So you would want secular ethics. You would want things that perhaps came out of Christian ethics and then were, were secularized, things that can be taught as not simply being Christian ethics, things that perhaps were pre-Christian, you would want to at least bring those to the table. And Actually, if you look at the history of Christianity and Christian ethics, Mill is a little bit deforming the way things actually took place here. He talks about the first five centuries. There is an incredible amount of taking in other ideas from non-Christian sources and adapting them within the fabric or frame of what we can call Christian ethics. But when people are saying like, oh, if it's not in the Bible, then we don't practice it. Well, you need something else to overcome that one-sidedness. And in places where something that we call Christian ethics would be the dominant morality, then you need some other perspectives to supply the missing truth. So this is three examples here of how this would actually work in practice this overcoming one-sidedness, it's only going to take place, according to Mill, if we do in fact allow a diversity of opinions to be expressed so that perspectives can be confronted with alternate or rival perspectives And then the missing parts can be filled in and we can arrive at, if not a perfect and comprehensive perspective that encompasses all truth, which is a little bit unrealistic, Mill would say at this stage. We can at least make some progress in that direction. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.